Welcome to another Vertiguys episode. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. We are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we've got Hellblazer issues 52 through 55 lined up for you. A story arc they call Royal Blood. As for why, we will get to that soon, and it is somewhat shocking. Well, so that's interesting. Yeah, you told me that you were shocked by these issues. Okay. And when I was kind of reading them, I was mostly wondering what was so shocking about them. And, you know, in some ways, in some ways, this is a pretty standard Hellblazer story. You know, we've got a demon wreaking havoc. It gets maybe a little bit gorier and nastier than usual, but kind of par for the course but I gather now that you were actually referring more to, like, the sedition. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, the sedition. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> because this comic is very British and very offensive to British people. Or, I mean, obviously, like, some subjects of the crown might enjoy this level of sedition. <laughs> yeah, it definitely gets a little bit revolutionary. It's political as shit. <laughs> yeah. We will get into that. Now, Hellblazer number 52. We've got a Glenn Fabry cover here. Hey! The team of Garth Ennis and Glenn Fabry working on this comic book, although the interior art is by Will Simpson. Right, yeah, no Steve Dillon, but we do have Garth Ennis and Glenn Fabry together again. I am not sure if this is the first Glenn Fabry cover we've gotten on a Hellblazer, but it's always good to see him at work. Yeah, and they brought in an expert in drawing very realistic looking faces in order to draw a face which is not the face of the bad guy. Yeah, what we have here is a hand clutching a knife and we can see the reflection of a demon in that knife. Yeah, pretty creepy. We've also got an upside down chained person, a pile of skulls, and a mean looking face. I wondered if this was John, but I thought it was supposed to be the demonically possessed character. But you couldn't put a realistic drawing of that person's face on the cover of this comic. Well, not if they're... Yeah. Not if they're who we think they are. Not if they're the same person. We'll get to it. We'll stop being so cagey in a few minutes, uh, we promise. I did mention the rest of the credits. I will mention Colors by Tom Zuko. So we open on... The title page is our first page. And we've got a guy in a subway station who's been cut to ribbons. Yeah, we open on a... brutally murdered. On a bloody scene. This is first page. Some serious gore. You know what you were getting into here. There's an eyeless corpse hanging over a broken brick wall. Royal blood is written in the victim's blood on the wall. Which specifically, it's on a movie poster for a movie entitled Dying Young. Okay, that's cute. And the title of this particular part, The Players, is written in the spreading pool below him. Yeah, we're told that this is Mickey Foster, 
he approached a man who looked familiar to him and made a pass at him and was cut by something thinner than air. Yeah, he offered to come home with him for money. Mickey is a hustler. Yeah, and he also, before dying, he notes that the man he was approaching had been on television. He had seen him on telly. Yeah, so he was, he was tortured, he was castrated, it was a bad, bad time all around, but before he dies, he remembers that the man was on telly, and then the body is found by a young woman who screams until her throat bleeds. And this narration ends with, Happy New Year. Yeah, now the possessed guy, the demon in his head has made it so that he can no longer remember who he is, and he is trying to figure it out. Yeah. I want to say, I've not been the biggest fan of Will Simpson's art in the past, but his style really does work for lurid violence like this. It kind of reminds me of, like, Barry Windsor Smith and his level of detail, although much gorier than he ever got to be in his mainstream Marvel work. But this is definitely not subtle. This is showing, not hinting. Yeah, I think the art in these issues by Will Simpson is pretty solid, but we're coming back again to that same old problem of the color palette is sometimes a little bit too flat. Yeah, yeah, I can see what you mean. So the possessed guy is trying to remember who he is. Meanwhile, another guy, a dignified, aristocratic-looking fellow with white hair and a mustache, he knows what this possessed guy has been up to, and he becomes angry when he realizes who he's going to have to ask for help. Yeah, he knows not just what he's been up to, but who the possessed man is. And that is obviously a big problem for him, for which he is going to need to hire somebody who's going to be a big problem. We go to Constantine. He is in bed with Kit, who has recently become his girlfriend. Yeah, that's just about the one relevant piece of previously here. Yeah, and he's got a little bit of a hangover that he forgets all about as soon as he sees the woman sitting next to him. We're told he grins to himself as he goes down the stairs. Thoughts of drinking and kissing and loving, dancing in his mind. He's smiling a lot more these days. We see him get dressed, and although the narration tells us that his clothes are ratty and dirty, seems like he's looking pretty good. He throws on his coat, his infamous coat, and goes for a walk. Yeah, and we're told that he wouldn't swap the coat for love nor money. Yeah. So he's quite attached to it. Yeah, but he's not just headed out for a walk. He's looking for trouble. He's looking for, quote, something to get stuck into. Yeah, and we see him here. He's chatting with a big bloke. Yeah, I thought this guy was going to be more relevant. He had kind of a striking design. But, just a big bearded guy. Yeah, just an awfully big man. When the mustached fellow, who we learn is Sir Peter Marston, comes across him. Okay, so before Marston reaches John, he is interrupted by a young black man who wants to sell him speed. And when he approaches this guy, for a minute he sees Constantine walking up to him, offering him to sell him speed. So... Constantine has cast a little illusion to try to avoid Marston. And I wondered, is Constantine in this alley to buy drugs? No, I doubt it. You want speed, Grandad? I like that. The guy says, you want speed, Grandad, and he has to say it three times before he says it slow enough for Marston to understand him. Apparently he wants to slow down. Constantine, but I thought that fellow was you. I know, I'm the one who made you think it. Constantine wants to get to the point and find out what Marston wants. Yeah, Marston has something for John which he says of mutual interest. John has already heard about the murder on the radio and figured he would probably have to get involved. That killing is the item of mutual interest. Marston invites John to talk about it at four this afternoon, 
and then he gets in the car and prepares to be driven to a higher class of place. Only John has swiped his keys. Yeah, just as Marston is thinking that it's always good to get the last word in with the oi polloi like Constantine, he uh, realizes that Constantine has gotten the last word after all by swiping his keys. So this theme of class struggle, both in general and specifically between Constantine and Marston, is set up right from the beginning. The keys are sitting on a table of a cafe where John is having lunch with Kit. We learn from their conversation that Marston is a member of the House of Lords, but his real job is as a fixer for government and big business. Yeah, we are also told that he likes discipline. I have written, um, discipline. Brendan and I stitched him up for five grand once, dead easy. Got our hands on a set of Polaroids. They showed him tied to a bed while a nice young lady in a nurse's outfit whipped the arse off him. Not really original, but there you are. Kind of wish he'd stayed on original, having read the rest of the story arc. <laughs> yeah, that's true. John says he wouldn't mind taking Marston's case, if only to screw a few thousand quid out of him. Yeah, so here we've got John admitting to a blackmail scheme, which, again, doesn't exactly make him a con man. We're always being told that John is a con man. <laughs> uh, we now know at least that he is a blackmailer. <laughs> Still not a con man. If you blackmail somebody with evidence that doesn't exist, then you are definitely a con man, right? I suppose that's true, yeah. Okay. Now, Kit mentions that John has been at her place for a week. John has actually been staying with Kit since number 48, so the issues are coming in quick succession here. Right, yeah, we know that they got together shortly before Christmas, because there was a Christmas issue. Yeah. And this is supposed to be the first day of the year. Yeah, okay. So... He was staying with her before Christmas. He moved in sort of before they became a couple, actually. There was that incident with the King of the Vampires. And now it is New Year's Day. Yeah, she says she's okay with him moving in, but she doesn't want his baggage. And by baggage, she's not talking about his sundries. <laughs> and by baggage, do we mean ghoulies, ghosties, and things that go bump in the night? We do. This is kind of a strange turnaround, actually, because in the little two-part ghost story arc, she was actually kind of upset about not being let into the weirdness of John's life. Yeah, so her characterization is a little bit inconsistent here. Here she does a pretty good Jason Blood impression. Or rather, Constantine impression. Ooh, I'm a disaster, and all I do is bring pain and misery to those that cross my doom-kissed path. I walk alone towards Armageddon while the world draws from me aghast. <laughs> so they agree that John will move in, but no baggage. Tell you what, we can give it a try, but I'll kick your arse for you the first time something goes bump in the night, okay? Even if it's me. Pervert. Meanwhile, the killer is watching a guy on a bench. The demon is desperate to kill again. The demon doesn't care who it gets to have fun with. It just likes to cut, and everyone in this world can be cut. Yeah, now, we're told that the man is searching his memory, but his memory is gone. So instead, he ends up searching the demon's memory, and we see memories of the good times. And this is not entirely clear here. At least it was never clear to me what this is. We get a guy who's being hung from ropes, and a demon bursts out of his chest. This is the demon playing Alien 3 for the Sega Genesis. Okay. That's the flashback to the good times. Yeah, the good times. Okay. Yeah, this monster bursts out of this guy's chest. I wondered... I mean, this could just be the demon doing something horrifically violent, or there's a line later that suggests that the demon was human once. Maybe this is like its actual birth. Okay. In any case, he informs the guy whose chest he's bursting out of that he is called above. He has things he has to do. Promises to keep 
Yeah, he quotes from Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost here. Truly demonic. (laughs) I think this is the second time you've mentioned not being much of a Frost fan. The demon likes the world better than hell, the narration tells us. Because here, it can kill the innocent, not just the damned. And we see that he's got a victim hung upside down. The victim starts to recognize the possessed body. Wait a minute! I mean, you're him! Holy frigging Jesus! You're... Ah! Yeah, the demon slashes his eyes out before he can say any more. And then we cut to the same victim's broken body sometime later, as the demon's narration tells us that he tortured this guy for five hours. It's just a bad guy all around. The demon, I mean. Yep. And also made, uh, made his carrier eat some parts. Right. We're told that the demon takes nourishment from despair, misery, agony, and terror. Best of all is the exquisite taste of shock, when all the rules are broken and the victim finds himself in hell before he's dead. But its appetite is whetted and it goes looking for a main course. Oh, yeah, and it says, It takes its time. There's a whole city outside, and it's spoilt for choice. Which is almost the exact same phrase that Kev used. Yeah. So Constantine is now meeting up with Marston as planned. He asks, Did you enjoy your walk home? Oh, prick. I didn't walk. I used a form of public transport commonly known as the tube. It was full of scum and very disagreeable. Presumably you won't be returning my keys? Petty, aren't I? Let's cut the shit, Marston. What do you want? Marston says that they shall cut the shit indeed. He tells him to follow and says he has something he has to show him. And he leads John into the Caligula Club, which we quickly discern is a kinky sex club for the super rich and elite. Yeah, not famous for anything. It's been kept completely under wraps. The club, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. As far as I can tell here, they resisted the urge to put any recognizable famous people in this pan across the club. But unfortunately, kinky sex is the least of it. John sees some folks drinking human blood, and Marston explains that the club provides diversions ranging from simple sadistic perversion to actual murder. Tension demands release. Unusual tension demands release that can only be described as appalling. Now, why do they provide this club, Marston asks and prepares to answer? Because you're a pack of... Yeah, I think John's got the right of it. But Marston says that why is best illustrated by a story from five years ago. So he asked the question and he's going to answer it with an anecdote. Lovely conversationalist. A young journalist of immense intelligence and resource infiltrated the club one Saturday night. It was a typical bash. Most of the cabinet were here, chairman of several consortiums, celebrities, and so on. The prime minister was here, too, being shaved. The journalist carefully photographed everything and was then caught. He was completely unfazed and boasted how he would print the truth and destroy us. I was very understanding with him. I can remember the very words I used, too. Better our perverse energies should be applied here than in affairs of state. Good, isn't it? What seems like common sense, coupled with the threat of something unthinkable. He burnt the film himself. Then I blew his brains out with a Webley .454. Lord Browning's party died under his heart, I seem to remember. I actually think this argument is kind of weak. I mean, they have to keep the Caligula Club secret, which means they would lose their power and position if the truth came out which means they could be replaced with people who aren't horrible, murderous perverts. Yeah, but this incident shows us that Marston has something of a silver tongue. Mm, true. Although Constantine doesn't seem to have a lot of patience for his bullshit. We now see that the next entertainment for the evening, 
two starved cats are being placed together in a large jar. A large glass jar so that the spectators can watch them fight. Would you believe the President of the United States fell asleep during that? Bloody Philistine. The present incumbent is more our sort of chap, Marston says. Did you think that that was a, a reference to Bill Clinton? I think chronologically it's what, May of 92? It's April of 92. Clinton hasn't been elected yet then. So I guess chronologically the present incumbent is George H.W. Bush. Right. They're quickly incriminating people at the highest level here. Uh, and that will continue. Yeah. John is running out of patience for Marston's bloviating. John tells Marston to shut up and say something useful, or I send you straight to hell. Marston buys the threat. Yeah. As you've seen, we provide people with just about anything they want. Last night, a member of the club, a rather famous gentleman, arrived here with a friend of his and a young woman they'd uh, picked up on the streets. They drank at the bar for a while, then came to this private room. It was New Year's Eve, and things were, of course, quite unrestrained in the main room. We didn't hear anything. But when Marston checked into the private room some hours later, he found... And he's got a cloth covering it now, but he pulls it aside to show John. Two skeletons in a pentagram. Okay, Marston, you've got what looks like a major summoning, little blade marks all over the floor, and two corpses that look like they got hit in the same way as that kid they found this morning. The, uh, gentleman I mentioned, he isn't one of these two. I think he's, uh... Possessed? So John asks, who is this gentleman? He is, uh, he's... Oh god, this is awful, he's... Don't be shy, Sir Peter, you can tell me. He's considered above reproach. He is loved and respected, both here and abroad. He's a very prominent member of the royal family. And John grins like a maniac as he says, Oh good, I think I'm going to enjoy this one. Yeah, we've got a ghastly smile from John here that marks the last panel of this issue. He is beginning to enjoy himself, and there's an element of class warfare and an element of thrill-seeker involved in that, I think. Yeah, I also think it's an element of John just, like, you know, it's a horrifying situation, but he's being glib and putting up a brave face. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's fair. I also think he likes having something over on Marston. So that brings us to Hellblazer number 53. This is the same creative team, and we've got another Glenn Fabry cover here where John Constantine is holding hands with a skeleton. Okay, again I assumed this was the baddie. I guess if it's John... It could be the baddie. It's a man. It, yeah, okay. Yeah, holding hands with a skeleton. Creepy cover. Uh, memorable image. This is Royal Blood Part 2, Revelations. John narrates, for those of us who missed Part 1, that an heir to the throne is possessed. The good royal, the one who understands our needs, graces us with his decent, ordinary insight. Oh, God bless him, he does a great job. Now, okay, this is the point where I started to say, what they're definitely not going to do is make it so that if you know the royals well, you can easily guess which one it is. They're going to use, like, fictional royals or something, right? And you don't feel that that's what they did? This is a pretty clear stand-in for a real person? Yeah, I think we should mention that in the art we never see the possessed man's face. And we're going to meet some other important people who we're also not going to get good looks at. Yeah. So yeah, I think that if you know the details, you can figure it out, and it is intended to be the real people. And that's less shocking over here, I think, than it probably is in Great Britain. There was a point that came here where I, I texted you, I can't believe they published this. Yeah, yeah, you definitely, you definitely said you couldn't believe they published it. Maybe this is just my ignorance of the royal family, but I don't think they ever get really too explicit with who it is. You know, it's not full-blown treason. 
Well, I think we should refer to him as the prince or the possessed man so that we're not we're not referring to him by any name that is that has been left ambiguous deliberately in the text. Uh, again, you don't have to worry about it. I don't know the royal family well enough to know what name we would use if we were to say it. <laughs> I think if you put the evidence together, it's Prince Charles. Well, Constantine opines that the prince is a two-faced shit. He seems like such a man of the people on the outside, but in there in the club, he shows his true colors. Right. And it's interesting the things that they do and do not ascribe to the prince over the course of this story. Namely... He's not directly responsible for the demon's atrocities, and in fact, he's clearly disapproving of them. Right. He's horrified at what the demon is making him do with his body. But he was at a decadent sex and murder club with a prostitute. Right. And Constantine thinks Christ alone knows what he's doing now. And we get a splash page where he seems to be eating a guy. Yeah, eating out of a man's ripped open chest. It's a yucky picture. (laughs) And this is the title page, Royal Blood Part 2, Revelations. Okay, so we find John having breakfast at a fancy restaurant with Marston. The last victim is two hours dead, and Marston already has the police report. Yeah, <laughs> the part that's funny to me here is Constantine's use of the word bods. Go ahead. Both the latest bods were partially eaten. <laughs> he must have quite an appetite. <laughs> I'm sorry, now I hear it out loud, yeah. You're used to hearing, you know, you know, beach bods. Yeah, yeah, different usage. Not, not filthy alley bods. <laughs> oh, God. Marston guesses that John is planning to go to the press as soon as he stopped the killings. John retorts that he's pretty sure Marston's planning on making sure he doesn't go anywhere. So glad we understand each other. In the next scene, we find John thinking about how he's too rushed to stop the killings to come up with a counter plan for Marston as he is meeting with some of the prince's associates. Right, and we are introduced here to David Hazlitt and Hugh and Holly Elliott, who are twins. Yeah, Hazlitt is a Scots Guard lieutenant, and the twins, John implies, are into each other. The original Game of Thrones plot twist. The very first plot twist from Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. These three and Marston were the only ones who knew that the prince was into black magic. We're a little wary of the Hocus Pocus. Mmm, daft business. Look where it's got our chum. But John invites the three of them to a seance tonight. Don't go far, boys and girls. Now before he can leave, a valet summons him into another room, a dark room, to meet someone other than Marston. This is the character John refers to as the brother. The prince's brother. Yeah. Which would make him a prince also. Yes. And we are soon to find out that the brother is not first in line to the throne. The possessed man is ahead of him. Right. So I'm going to keep calling him the brother, but it's probably Prince Andrew. And he's about to stuff a half a gram of coke up his conch. (laughs) We are told. (laughs) Up his conch. Up his conch. John calls him an overpaid parasite to his face. Now the brother takes the long way around to get to anything relevant, segueing through his hatred of the Irish. Don't see why we can't build a big wall around Belfast and throw food into the bastards. He mentions his uncle being killed by terrorists. Now, I believe this refers to the assassination of Admiral of the Fleet Louis Mountbatten, great uncle of the Royal Brothers, in 1979. So thanks to uh, Sequart's Maximus Dorowich for, for that one. Constantine catches sight of the urn where the ashes are kept, the ashes of the uncle in question. Yeah, so he's picked up this urn, and he... Guesses what the brother is about. 
He wants him to bollocks up the investigation on purpose, so the prince dies and the brother gets one step closer to the throne. Yeah, and he somehow sneakily swaps the cocaine that the prince is about to sniff for the ashes. I don't know how he pulls that off in a room in a room that's so dark you could do that unnoticed. How does he do it unnoticed? Yeah. John doesn't have dark vision 60 feet, does he? Yeah, it's not really ever clear how he does it. But he says, I'd strongly advise you to keep your eyes open, because you've just snorted your uncle's ashes. My girlfriend's from Belfast, son. Watch your mouth in the future. He also sings a little bit of Queen here. John tells Marston to have the rich friends here at 10 tonight and to watch out for the brother. And he needs something else from Marston. Something that'll probably work, because we don't find out what it is yet. In another filthy alley, we are told that the host that the demon is possessing is full, but the demon is still hungry, and it has to remind him who's boss. Yeah, the man thinks he could find a way out of this if he could just remember who he was, so the demon decides to do something to punish him. The demon, coiled neatly round the cortex in his brain, slides a finger across the man's mind and realizes what he's thinking. It decides to remind him who's boss. A woman comes around the corner. Yeah, she comes because she hears screaming, in fact. And sees the possessed man is cutting his own fingers off. I'd guess he's pulling his fingernails out with pliers here. Okay, it's pretty nasty. Yeah, as we mentioned, there's a lot of gore in this story arc. Sometimes it goes a little bit too far. It certainly goes farther than we're used to seeing, I think, some of the time. Yeah, I think that's true. Back at home, John runs into Kit. She's here to pick up her portfolio, hopeful of getting a book jacket job with a large Yank publisher. She's apparently a professional artist. Back for lunch or something? John asks. That's a hopeful sounding or something. Yeah, John also mentions that both the prince and Marston put tails on them, but he was able to lose them both before he got home. Yeah. Now he says that he's up to some nasty stuff, which she reminds him not to bring home, causing him to cast aside the book of ancient-looking glyphs that he's reading. I would never let any of this shit hurt you, you know. As soon as I got even a hint you could be tangled up, I'd drop it like a stone. Glad to hear it. She says it's okay if he moves in, and she goes on to say, Remember when she said you were cute when you were asleep? Well, she apparently did a sketch of him, and we see her sketch of a sleeping Constantine. Goodbye, Mr. Cool. Now we have John come calling at the home of a blonde ponytailed guy. Yeah, short cropped blonde hair. He hears a knock on his door, and on opening it to reveal Constantine, he slams it behind him and yells, SHIT! And even though this is a different artist, this is the exact same joke that they did at least twice in Preacher. Yeah, he tries to run. Suppose I'm lucky to be catching you in, Nige, you being such a busy, angry young man. Shouldn't you be out smashing the state? Oh, don't be so bloody bourgeois and cynical. So this is Nigel Archer, a psychic that John knows, and also an anarchist, or radical journalist, as John says. I thought John said he wasn't a radical journalist because he's never been published. Yeah, that's a pretty good take. He's apparently met Constantine when he investigated a student union haunting, which... I like this. I like that they keep dropping little episodes from John's past that we haven't seen. Indeed, including when Nigel finds out that John wants him for a seance, he says... I heard all about your last bloody seance, Constantine. Oh yes, that frigging fiasco at Winter's Place. What was it, two dead, one bonkers? Now this is an incident I think we know nothing about, right? Not that I remember. So it seems like John has pretty quickly come up with a twofold plan to deal with Marston. 
because the psychic can help him deal with the demon, and he's also a journalist who can publish some incriminating details afterwards. Yeah, questionable whether Constantine actually ever intends for this to come out and be made public, but certainly Marston is worried about that, and I imagine John is pretty satisfied with keeping Marston worried. I think it's a concern of his to still have something that Marston needs at the end. Blackmailing to keep himself alive would be a good way out of this fix. Yeah, right in John's wheelhouse. Okay, so we get to the seance. John, narrating, mentions that the problem with this whole business is that everyone seems to think of it as politics, talking about cover-ups and damage to public confidence, and all the time there's a demon loose out there. To John, the politics and the public image stuff is less important than the horror of what's actually happening, which makes him just about the only one in this situation. Now, for all their being on opposite sides of the power struggle, Nigel and Marston are really kind of the same. Mm -hmm. You know, Marston is thinking of this as a potential PR crisis. Nigel is thinking of it as a potential opportunity. But they're both kind of more focused on the PR elements of it. Yeah, exactly. Face and whether it will be saved. Yeah. John casts himself as the one concerned about lives here. So, in addition to John and Marston, we've got Heslet, the Elliots, and Nigel. Right. John leads them into a room where the first three corpses are arranged around a table. Yeah. We're going to use them to talk to the demon. So, everybody holds hands, and this is a remarkably grody detail. John and Holly are on the ends next to the corpses, so they have to hold the skeletal hands. Right, as in the cover. Hazlitt says, I simply bloody refuse, but Marston backs him down. You simply bloody do not. Nigel summons up the souls of the three victims back into their bodies, and they immediately start screaming, begging to be sent back. Safe and warm and didn't want to come back. Cold flesh here, cold, let us go. John says Nigel has to keep him here, keep him talking. And their presence in turn summons the demon. Right, they are bait for the demon to get it here and talking. The demon smells the souls returning to flesh it had thought untenable, feels a guiding mind pulling them back from the hereafter. Intrigued, it leaves the man in a deep coma and lopes off to see for itself. Oh, I want to point out here that the corpse next to Holly has laid its head on her shoulder and she is freaked all the way out by it. So the demon, which kind of looks like a skull with some tentacles and a little ridge across the center of its head, shows up and says, Ill met. How rude. John yells at the demon, saying it's supposed to be punishing the damned in hell, but instead it's here, tormenting the innocent. You're out of your jurisdiction. I was called. He says that it owes its victims something. Right, it gets to have its fun, but... They're flesh for your name, you bastard. Tell them your name. A man who knows the rules. Very well. At this point, the three bodies explode with their souls jetting out of them. Nigel says the demon's gone, but whatever it told the ghosts is driving them wild. It's not just the name, he says. Yeah, it told them something else. Something awful. Calabraxis, Lord of Blades, butcher to the Devil's Court. Been here before. Killed here. Stalked through alleys with a knife and used it long ago. A century back. A long autumn of fear and splashing white chapel of bloody crimson making hell on earth! And then we get a huge screech! as it looks like all the corpses kind of explode into protoplasm. Yeah, kind of liquefy, blasting the rich kids with this horrible gunk. Thanks for your help, kiddies, John says. 
And when you've a minute, love, a cup of tea, eh? Milk, two sugars, ta? No, that's just sexist. <laughs> yeah, he's he's being a jerk to Holly Elliot. Who is, like, shell-shocked into silence here. Yeah, she's she's struck dumb, and I don't think she actually speaks again for quite a while, if at all. So, a little later on, Marston asks John what's next. Well, we've got its name, and names are very important in this business. All we have to do is look up the right ritual to trap the bugger. But it's a sneaky one. It's been here before, just like it told its kills. An autumn of fear in Whitechapel? A knife? Alleys? Bloody crimson? What does that remind you of? It's the same son of a bitch that possessed Jack the Ripper. Oh, holy shit. Okay, so that brings us to Hellblazer number 54. We have a very good Glenn Fabry cover here. This is definitely Constantine. Yeah, this cover is fucking rad and fully enjoying the concept that this is a Constantine versus Jack the Ripper story. Yeah, we've got Jack the Ripper standing in the mist with his knife, John Constantine. The trench coat and cigarette make it much clearer than the previous two covers that it's definitely supposed to be him, and he's kind of looking on. Yeah, I wrote smoking intensely. (laughs) Smoking intensifies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the prince wakes up and vomits up all this raw flesh that he's been stuffed with. Referred to as dog food from hell. Yeah, this is the prince in the absence of the demon, it having flitted off to talk to Constantine. Right, the demon left to go attend the seance, as it were, and now it's back. Yeah, so it forces him to stop vomiting, re-enters his body, and it fondly recalls being Jack the Ripper. Royal Blood Part 3, The Good Old Days. We see a splash page here of the demon Calabraxis, kind of with his arms over the city, and we've got horse-drawn carriages and the like on the streets of London. It had been fun while it lasted. Okay, this is nitpicking, but the fact that Jack the Ripper getting caught ended Calabraxis for the last reign of terror suggests that it can't just hop into another body. Right? Somebody who wasn't complicit in calling it. Also, Jack the Ripper killed five victims over two and a half months. The prince has been killing about every 12 hours. Is Calabraxis now more powerful or less patient? Yeah, that's a good point. It's a little error. The story doesn't quite hold together. But one thing we will find out that maybe makes it make a little more sense is that the demon was summoned into Jack the Ripper to complete a very specific job. Mm, Yeah. So maybe that's what makes the difference in the kind of pace of the killings. Yeah. John thanks Nigel for his work on the seance. Nigel coolly reminds John that he promised to share what he found out. Pull back your lug holes and Uncle Johnny will tell you a bedtime story. It's called Jack the Ripper. Once upon a time... The story also opens with a prince, Prince Albert, though John quickly denies that he was the one possessed that time. John says Prince Albert knocked up a commoner, any crook, and Queen Victoria ordered a cover-up. The bloke who sorted it all out was Sir William Gull, top Freemason, pals with the Queen and so on. He sliced out a part of Annie's brain and confined her to a loony bin. And then, when some of Annie's mates tried to blackmail the government with what they knew about it, Gull killed the lot of them. He was Jack the Ripper. I did a little research here. The Annie Crook story is usually attributed to Stephen Knight's 1976 book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. It's also central to the plot of Alan Moore's Jack the Ripper graphic novel, From Hell, which had already begun to be serialized in Taboo magazine at the time of this issue. So to be clear now, you're saying Annie Crook wasn't a real person? No, I'm not saying she's not a real person. I'm just saying that, as far as I know, that book is the origin of this explanation, of this... Oh, the idea that she was... Of this theory as to who Jack the Ripper was and why it happened. Okay. And that, as far as I can tell, Alan Moore borrowed from the same source when he wrote his Jack the Ripper graphic novel. 
Nigel protests, I've never heard any of this before. But John says, it's been in print. The problem is that with a story like Jack the Ripper, people don't believe the truth when they hear it. It gets sneered off, just like all the other explanations. John says he got the truth by blackmailing a high-ranking Freemason he caught buggering a corpse. He called and got confirmation this morning. Gull was the Ripper, all right, but it's not as simple as that. He didn't quite have the balls for murder, not by himself. So him and his Mason friends had themselves a little ritual. They summoned up Calibraxis, and they trapped him and bound him into Gull. And all of a sudden, Sir William Withy Gull had the balls for anything. Yeah, we're told that they took Gull into Whitechapel in a handsome cab. He killed several prostitutes, including one by accident who had nothing to do with the blackmail. Right, they didn't have perfect control over Calabraxis even then. Right. When he'd finished, they threw him into the nuthouse. And that may be poetic justice for what he did to Annie Crook, but I'd have done a lot worse to him. Now, this is interesting because John, of course, has a history of being thrown into a nuthouse himself. True. So he knows what a bad fate that is, but it's not bad enough, in his opinion. And then he died, and Calabraxis took the frigger down to hell as a souvenir. Now, at this point, John and Nigel basically have the same argument that John had in his head last issue. John wants to stop the demon. Nigel wants to tell everybody the truth. He accuses Nigel of cold-blooded willingness to sacrifice those the demon kills while he's busy publishing the truth, but Nigel turns it around. If anyone knows about sacrificing their mates for the cause, Constantine, it's you! Yeah, that's pretty good. Armor-piercing. Yeah, but he immediately regrets saying this and apologizes. And then he goes to the toilet, where he sees something disconcerting in the graffiti and yells for help. I do want to point out, John has a good line here. He says, don't let ideas become more important than people, son. I thought here that Nigel had been attacked by the demon, but it turns out that he just realizes John is the one who wrote, tear yourself off a socialist manifesto here with an arrow towards the TP. Oh, that Constantine. <laughs> the, the bog roll, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the possessed man is still trying to figure out who he is. The man won't give up. He needs to know who he is so badly, and if his own memory is off-limits, the demon's isn't. The man goes hunting through ten centuries of evil, sifting a history of devil's butchery for the one moment when it first intersected with his own. Right. Torturing his own body hasn't stopped the prince, and neither does all the damage Calabraxis does to his mind trying to stop him searching through the demon's memory for clues. Hey, if you're going to portray real-life royalty as a demon-ridden serial killer, the least you can do is show some heroic reluctance, right? Now, searching through Calabraxis's memory, the possessed man comes across the memory of the seance. He recognizes John Constantine, or he should say the demon recognizes him, the man doesn't. But he does know Heslet and the Elliot twins. Yeah, and Marston. Marston, yeah, most importantly, Marston. Marston at the club who set him up and promised him the throne and gave him hell the throne. How could he get the throne unless he was he was? He knows who he was. Calabraxis regains control just before he can scream. And apparently makes him start beating his head into the ground. Yeah. Meanwhile, Kit lets John into the flat, toting suitcases. Ah, oh, it's the Wild Rover. In you come. Yeah, so this is John moving in, as they've discussed in the previous issues. Kit goes digging through the suitcases, hoping to find a present for her, and finds the glyphs. Bit of homework, I suppose. Look, I promised I wouldn't do any weird stuff around you, right? And I haven't. That is something I'm doing at the minute, sure, but I'm not doing it here. And she seems mollified by this. Well, seeing as you've just moved in, I'll cook the tea. What do you fancy? Constantine grins and moves toward her. Not hungry, then. 
Depends what's cooking. They do sex. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for summing up, although it actually happens off panel. Right. (laughs) We can conclude that they do sex. Later on, we find John and Nigel heading to the Caligula Club to meet with Marston about a plan to trap Calabraxis. This is kind of cute. John's grinning like an idiot, and Nigel asks him what he's smiling about. And we know it's because he just got laid. And he answers, just thinking about food. John shows Nigel the page with the glyphs. It's a page from the Grimorium Verum concerning Calabraxis. The yellow pages of hell. John has apparently not learned his lesson about trying to bind demons using the information from the Grimorium Verum. Bad boy, Constantine. So John explains that with the pages they have, it'll be pretty straightforward to bind the demon. Nigel asks if that means it's not dangerous. And John says, Oh, of course it'll still be dangerous. It'll be bloody lethal if we screw it up. We'll end up with our bollocks ripped off, make no mistake about it. Ah, thanks for clearing that up. Inside, Marston and Heslet are waiting. Marston seems to suddenly realize that John is going to go very public with all this once the demon stopped. <laughs> yeah, he sees Nigel walking in and says, Constantine and his psychic bullshit. Heslet yells at Marston for bringing John in in the first place, and Marston yells back that Heslet was weak at the seance, and anyway, he doesn't know anyone better. Oh god, this isn't getting us anywhere. Obviously, the less people that know about this, the better, Heslet. He asks about the twins. Heslet says neither has spoken a word since the seance, so they're contained. But after the demons dealt with, Marston says, comes the cover-up. And for that, he pulls out the Webley 454 and gives it to Heslet. Constantine will hardly be required for that. The same goes for his friend. I'd like it back when you're finished with it, Heslet. Sentimental value. As John and Nigel are walking through the club, the brother... The prince's brother pops out of a room wearing a gimp mask. Yeah, and little else. He says that he's going to kill John for that business with the ashes, so John flips him the bird. That's it, that's the whole story. Inside the office, Constantine starts mocking Heslet for his earlier cowardice. Marston asks if John's spell will harm the host. This little boy was only ten, and he got his face eaten off, Marston. Depends how I feel. Calabraxis, finally realizing he's in danger, he shuts off the prince's mind and makes a beeline for the Caligula Club. He's after Constantine. Calabraxis knows him, knows what he did to the three lords of the fallen, and knows what will happen if he dies. Bound to take his soul, the three will go to war. Hell will fall to heaven. The Redeemer will cast them all into the lake of fire. Calabraxis couldn't give two shits. Now, in the ruckus that begins as the possessed man shows up and starts stabbing guards, Marsden slips out for a second, which gives Constantine the opportunity to have a nosy around his office. Yeah, that's mighty convenient. The first time I read this, Marsden running off to deal with this and leaving John and Nigel unsupervised in his office honestly seemed so easy I thought it was going to be a setup. But no, they find exactly what Marsden did not want them to find. Right, the same homework that Kit found in John's bag. The Calabraxis page from the Grimorium Verum. In fact, Marston's is more complete than John's. It includes not only the summoning ritual, but the one for binding Calabraxis into a body. Looks like me and Marston need to have words. And before they can do much with that, they hear screams and go running. John knows what horror to expect on the club's main floor. It but still comes as a bit of a shock. Yep, we see the possessed man, uh, chewing up randos. Yeah, slaughtering his way through club members and staff. Oddly... Marston and Heslet are on the far side of the room. Didn't they just run from the same place that John did? Maybe they came down a different staircase. Who knows? Calabraxis rushes John. His teeth bite into John's collarbone. John's head hits the floor, and he's out. He's friggin' gone. 
<laughs> Sorry, that shouldn't have worked on me. So on the cover of the final issue, Hellblazer number 55, we have the Union Jack with Calabraxus's horned face bursting through it. Yeah, so John comes to, he's being patched up by Hazlitt. The strong implication here is that they shot up the prince in order to save Constantine, which doesn't seem quite right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had to stop him somehow, and, and as far as Marston knows, he needs Constantine for the binding. Actually, that part's not right, because we know he has his own copy of the binding ritual. Fortunately, Hazlitt had the uh, foresight to bring a revolver. I believe they call it kneecapping. Yeah, and we see that the possessed man is now pinned to the floor with swords through each of his hands. And that's where we get our title, Royal Blood Part 4, Dog Eat Dog, which has the same creative team as the rest. Okay, so Marston has let John and Nigel repair to Marston's office to discuss matters. After sending Heslet off to take care of something else, Marston reminds John to forget all this once the matter is settled. I am a very powerful man, and the royal family's position must be protected. Well, if you even try to expose this affair, any newspaper editor who doesn't laugh you out of his office will find a D-notice staring him in the face. Clear? The Elliot twins are sitting in a room. They hear four gunshots. Heslet comes in and informs them, basically, that he's been shooting witnesses. And he's going to shoot them, too. And then he does. <laughs> Thanks for wrapping that up. We hear the four shots. He says four other club members saw what happened this evening. So he has shot them. Then he kills Hugh. And then he says, hey, I'm sorry about this, Holly. You know how it is. Oh, and she says, don't be sorry, which means... Right, the first she, time she's spoken since the sound. She does actually speak. Yeah, what do you make of that line? I don't know. I guess it's just like, kind of like a, you know, don't give me your fake regrets. If you're going to shoot me, go ahead and shoot me. Oh, okay. That's a little more defiant than I read it. I guess I took it more as like, she was so traumatized by the sounds, she just wants it all to be over. It could be that too. You know, that's the thing about a comic book. You can't read tone. Yeah, she doesn't have a lot of delivery here. So, Hazlitt shoots her and is thinking about how Constantine is his next target. Yeah, he seems to be enjoying shooting people way too much. We don't know that he's ever committed uh, cold-blooded murders before. But I guess he finds that it suits him. Yeah. Nigel is freaked by the shooting. You'd think they'd have a soundproof room for this, but... Okay. And John calmly explains that Hazlitt is taking out the witnesses. Yeah, Nigel freaks out. You know what that means, don't you? He'll kill us, too! Hmm, as soon as the demon's gone, we've had it. No! No, I don't want to die! <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Jimmy Stewart is one of the better Nigel concepts that we've had here. <laughs> no! <laughs> <laughs> the demon's coming, John. It's in Fred's house and Bill's house. <laughs> <laughs> We've lost the thread here. Yeah, uh, we were talking about a comic book once upon a time. Huh. Yeah, so I he's yelling at John here. I don't really see how this one's John's fault, but, you know. Well, I was a little concerned at this point in the story. I mean, Nigel is in a very precarious position, being John's old friend and all, and I myself was a little worried that maybe John's plan to come out of this alive didn't extend to Nigel not getting shot in the face. <laughs> we were getting a little worried. Yeah, now John tells him that he knows now that Marston is the one who summoned the demon, but he doesn't know why. Right, he summoned Calabraxis and bound it into the prince. And then he came to John to clean this up, which means he's not getting what he wanted out of it. 
Nigel asks what his plan is for, you know, not getting murdered. <laughs> we don't handle this right. We're going to all get murdered. And John says that he does have a plan. Screw them before they screw me. Oh, yeah, that was a good line. So John knocks on the brother's door. Yes, hello. I'm very busy. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's from the room. Oh, the room. Okay. He finds what he is looking for in the brother's paraphernalia, namely a pair of handcuffs. That's a bingo. <laughs> I just want to point out that John actually says bingo here. He didn't just say that to be a wise ass. Right. Okay, John catches up with Marston and orders Nigel and Heslet out of the room. Let's talk, Marston. I'm warning you. Quiet, Heslet. Do as he says. You wanted to put a demon on the throne, Marston. You're a friggin' lunatic. No, Constantine. I am a patriot. I wanted to restore the monarchy of this country to its rightful power. I wanted a king who would have the iron will to rule absolutely. And believe me, he was willing. He would be backed by the military and advised by me. There would be no parliament, no opposition, no radicals, no liberals, no thinkers, no immigrants. There would simply be the rulers and the ruled. And we could do anything. Just in case you were wondering if Marston was an asshole, in addition to being a maniac. Right. John points out that Marston's plan was to put Jack the Ripper on the throne of England. The bastard eats people, you headcase. Ah, oh, but Constantine, what has our royal family ever done except feed off the blood of the people? And we get a splash page here of Calibrax is sitting on the throne sucking the blood out of a British flag. Yeah. The red in the Union Jack has turned to blood and is running into Calibrax's mouth. It is a fairly incendiary image. <laughs> so this is that sedition we were talking about. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is remarkably unsubtle. And apolitical in its way, because it's not about any political position. It's just strictly anti-royal. You see what I'm saying? Sure. John says Marston has no idea what he's dealing with or how to stop it, and that he picked the wrong demon. Right. Calabraxis, the devil's butcher. You thought you could control it. Marston admits that it's been a disappointment. John says he knows he'll be killed as soon as he's done, but he's going to stop Calabraxis anyway, because he doesn't want it loose on Earth. And I know the next thing you're going to do, you stupid piece of upper-class shit, is go looking for another demon, and then you're going to try again. God damn you, black soul to hell. Upper-class twit of the year. <laughs> Definitely. We get almost a full page here of what looks to be Calabraxis clinging to the prince's brain. Yeah, it shows Calabraxis attached to the brain. And it kind of makes you wonder, like, how literally we're supposed to take this stuff about Calabraxis torturing the possessed man's brain. Sliding his fingers across his frontal lobes. Right, like, yeah. is this supposed to be the literal spatial relationship between the two of them? <laughs> and if so, is Calabraxis actually a couple of inches tall? Anyway, Calabraxis whines about how the game is almost up. Yeah, the possessed man is pinned to a pattern that they've drawn on the floor. Actually, I guess they pinned him to the floor first and then drew the pattern second. And now it's almost over. A shame. But there is one crumb of comfort, thinks Calabraxis. There's always a next time. Marston demands to know if they're ready. He wants to get on with it. And John thinks, You asked for this, Marston. If I had any doubts about what I'm going to do to you, they're long gone. All that demon kingmaker bullshit, pal. That was your death warrant. And John gives a kind of a dark smile as he thinks about how he's going to let this dude have it. Yeah, John has been instructing Nigel in the drawing of the arcane sigils, so they are almost ready for the ritual. John orders the demon out of the prince. Don't piss me about, you bastard. You heard the spell. You know the rules. Get out of him. 
The prince vomits up a mass of blood that takes the form of Calibraxis. The prince looks dead, but John says, don't worry about it, that's just an illusion. Bastard's showing off. And at this moment, Marston's freaking out. Finish the infernal thing! Send it to hell! Instead, John lunges toward Marston and slaps the cuffs on him. Yep, and then cuffs him to a pipe nearby. Calibraxis. And to him. What? At first, Calibraxis is bewildered. What the hell is this Constantine playing at? Then it sees his face and knows his thoughts. It's cuffed to the wall and can't reach the others, but it can still get one last meal. And Marston starts eating himself. Yuck. Yeah, he, uh... <laughs> we get this description. The vertebrae start popping as he goes for the candy, as Marston bends double to bite himself in the junk. <laughs> so that was, like, again, again, I was like... Again, for most of this, I was like, I don't know what Sean was getting at, that he says he's surprised they printed this. But then when it talks about, like, <laughs> he, he, he's trying to eat his own junk and it calls it going for the candy. I was like, okay, we're getting a little wild here. <laughs> it's getting a little boisterous. Let's take it down a couple of notches. Yeah, I mean, this is gory as all hell. It's audacious and rude and I would say willfully tasteless in places. But none of that really struck me as beyond the pale so much as the portrayal of real life royalty. Now, Hazlitt is standing up here. Constantine, he says, pointing his gun. Or Marston's gun, I should say. Make it stop. John retorts that he can see down the chambers of the gun, and they're empty. Hazlitt forgot to reload after shooting the six witnesses. Uh, Hazlitt is sweating bullets, but not shooting any, as he pulls the trigger, and it says, <laughs> Clink! I might be pretty useless in a punch-up, but I know this. Hit first, hit hard, and you might just win. Yeah, John pummels Heslet and tosses him within Marston's reach. Well, get it down ya. Yeah, Marston eats Heslet, but it's Constantine the demon really wants. He starts trying to gnaw his hand off to get free of the handcuffs, but John is confident that he won't be able to. Right, that his bones will hold. Ah, oh, Jesus, how can you watch? asks Nigel. Same as Marston, Nigel. I just want my pound of flesh. No, Nigel's right he thinks. And the two of them head out. They uh, briefly consider taking this opportunity to eliminate the prince, but they'd spend the rest of their lives on the run, and they figure the trauma will at least keep him down for a while. He's had a blade demon camping out in his bonds. He won't get over that too quickly. One way or another, the bastard will pay his dues. Marston awakens somewhere cold, hanging naked from a meat hook. Yeah, we are told that this is the pantry of Calibraxis, and he is hanging next to Sir William Withy Gull. Yeah, a figure hanging nearby, obscured by the fog. He calls out and gets back the name in return. I am Sir William Withy Gull. And the Devil's Butcher smiles, knowing what the first of the fallen will be dining on tonight. What has our royal family ever done except feed off the blood of the people? You tell me, mate. I only work here. Okay, so it gets a little seditious there. Yeah, that was... That was wild. <laughs> that was a pretty intense story arc there. One thing that I would say, uh, the ending is a bit abrupt. I would have liked to see John get safely back to Kit at the end, having established that that's his new place of residence. Uh, it would be nice to see normalcy reassert itself by seeing him there. His new raison d'etre. Sure, sure. Well, that was some pretty <laughs> sick shit. <laughs> I think I liked it. 
it was it was a fun story pretty gruesome yeah it was it was definitely gruesome it was definitely gory it was audacious as hell and i appreciate the sheer nonsense of the fact that the plan the evil plan is to put jack the ripper on the throne of england <laughs> yeah and they actually got there logically <laughs> right but yeah we get to see uh, john using a combination of arcane smarts and street smarts to solve a couple of problems at once. Once again, he solves a demonic possession by feeding people indiscriminately to the demon. But not really indiscriminately. He makes sure the he makes sure the bad people pay for what they've done and saves as many innocent people as he can. Yeah, he made sure that the right people got eaten by demons this time. And he didn't have to sacrifice a friend for once to do it. Right. Well, Marston is kind of his friend in this context, but they're not very friendly. No. But Marston is his contact who brought him into this whole thing and does not survive the story. So it is kind of typical John Constantine. Yeah, well, he was irritated when he knew he was going to have to call. And that was a, and that was a reasonable reaction. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of Calabraxis as a villain? He's a little one note, but oh, yeah. he's cool looking. You know, he's got a scary look to him, a scary appearance. And there's some good art that comes out of that. Yeah, I think... He is one note, but he's intended as a an unstoppable force that will just shred anything in its way. Right. And then the other villain that we have in this case is Marston, who is utterly ruthless and depraved. Yeah, he's sort of your perfect, like, upper-class fixer-type character. Mm -hmm. You know, plutocratic scum. Do you like him better as just a soulless manipulator for money and prestige? Or when the reveal comes out that he's completely maniacal? And sold out to demons. Oh, I think it gets better once you find out that he's completely maniacal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he's not a hypocrite anymore at that point. <laughs> he's not just helping himself sleep at night with a bunch of nonsense. It's about it's a good thing we do our perversions here instead of in matters of state. Mm -hmm. He's like, he's a full-blown maniac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who thinks that matters of state could use some more perversions. Yeah, and that, that removes the element where the story is saying at least this guy's better than the demon. Because right. he's a pretty foul guy. And now they're on yeah. the same level because he's responsible for the summoning in the first place. And that gives John the method and the motive to feed him to the demon. Yeah. I think it's cool that he, you know, is such an echo of Gull. Yeah, I think that's a good call. They share very similar appearance and ultimately the same fate. Yeah, and he gets not only destroyed by the demon that he summoned, but ends up in a in an appropriate hell. Right. Keeping the First of the Fallen, off-screen, but not off of our minds for the duration of this story. Mentioned a couple times that Calabraxis the Butcher works for him and that shit is still going on under the surface in hell. Right, yeah. The politics, still an ongoing situation, although kind of a static one for now. Mm -hmm. And a uh, really severely anti-royal story. <laughs> yeah, no question about that. Of course, maybe we're less surprised coming from an Irish writer, mm -hmm. than if it had been uh, an English one. But, you know, Constantine is an English character who has that anti-royal sentiment, and we find it believable. Yeah, in Constantine's case, it comes from his, his working-class roots. And there's not a ton of detail on why we should or shouldn't like the royals in this story. It's not an incredibly nuanced take. But there is something of a suggestion that... If you have royals, their job should be to take care of people, and if the working class is suffering, that means they're not doing it. Yeah. 
or not doing it well enough. Any uh, any last thoughts on this story arc? Oh, I do want to mention one other thing, which is that the narration in this story arc is omniscient. Not John's narration, as we've seen in previous Garth Ennis arcs. He's doing the Jamie Delano wordy ominous narration thing, and he's actually really good at it. Yes, indeed. Yeah, there's some good words in this one. Mm-hmm. Did you have a most Constantine moment? Ooh, Constantine moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, my mind immediately went to asking Holly for a cup of tea. That was mine, too. Yep, Holly has just been traumatized, struck dumb, and <laughs> and he uh, tells her to get him a cup of tea. Yeah. What a jerk. What a prick. <laughs> oh, Constantine. Never change. <laughs> now it's time for a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. This week, Sean's going to be reading High Level, number one, new from Vertigo. Is that a pun? Okay, that was High Level, chapter one, Ordell Fair. Story by Rob Sheridan, pencil art by Barnaby Begenda, color art by Romulo Fajardo Jr., and a cover by Guillaume Hospital. Yeah, so what did you think? Uh, it was interesting. It's sort of a cyberpunky post-apocalyptic kind of thing. More... Yeah, another post-apocalypse. Another post-apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> Things seem maybe a little more put together than in your typical post-apocalypse, at least in the sense that they use color in the comic book, which I appreciated. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big step up for post-apocalyptic fiction. Yeah, it seems more like a post-apocalyptic civilization than a, than a true post-apocalyptic wasteland, if right. that makes sense. Yeah. So we open on this very strange scene that I don't know what to make of yet. Yeah, we open on kind of like a medieval thing, and it's never really made clear how that relates to the larger story. Yeah, I guess we could assume that this is the Silver City, but that's not clearly established at this point. Yeah, I thought maybe it was a scene from the book. Okay, okay. There's this couple living in a medieval castle, although their dialogue is very modern for a medieval castle people, and then this guy in a cloak teleports in and says, are you looking for something more? Yeah, that's exactly how he said it. Maybe he's a Bible salesman. Probably, yeah. That's when we cut to our actual main character, whose name is 13, and she has a jumpsuit with 13 printed on it, and a gas mask, and a blue hair. Yep, she's definitely got a blue hair. A lot of them, actually. Right. <laughs> Dead jokes all the way. Yeah, kind of a cool character design here. Yeah, I think so. And like she's I said, got all, she's got she's a got... colorful outfit when she takes her sanitation worker jumpsuit off. Yeah, she's well, she's wearing like a fallout jumpsuit at first. Yeah. And she is the sewer girl. She's got a sewage pumping truck and a pipe and all that stuff. Although it seems like what she's doing is actually trying to salvage somehow, not just like doing sanitation work. Right. Little side hustle. So people are trying to hire her for a job, but it's up in high level and she doesn't work in high level. It's too dangerous. She lives in the south, which is kind of still post-apocalyptic, whereas up north they've got high level, which is to say there's like a ground city and a sky city, and if you're good in the ground city, you can go up to the sky city. Right. That's, that's the hustle. Yeah. The bar gets raided by Black Helix, which are kind of an army-type thing. There's apparently a war going on in or around high level. Although we haven't met the other side yet, as far as I can tell in this comic book. Right. Okay, so she gets out of there. She meets up with an old friend who says he's moving to high level. We get a couple different versions of high level, but 
the difference is basically whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. You could have the chance to ascend to the Sky City, but you might just be a slave in the Ground City for, you know, the rest of your life if you, if you don't qualify. Or maybe there just is no ascension and it's a myth that's used to keep people in line. Yeah, keep people working hard. Yep. Okay, so she takes a job and that leads her to a warehouse where she gets captured by this cyber cult. Like to modify themselves with cyberware, it seems like, because they think that human flesh is impure. Cyberware, yeah. Yeah, and we have some kind of bitchin' cyborg designs in this part. Yeah, this is a cool bit where she sees the shadow on the wall of this cyborg shape. And then we come around a couple pages to this guy on his on his four robot legs with his buzzsaw hand. Oh, he's got uh, three red eyes in the center of his face. Well, one of them's in the center. So they're about to cut her up and maybe, maybe not make her a cyborg, depending on how upset they are. Right. When she is rescued by Black Helix, who yep. raids the place. Yep, there's a dope action scene. Yeah, there's a dude. It is unclear if they used to be scavenging partners or more than that. But he wants to hire her to do a job for the Black Helix. I've left out something important, which is that when they raided the bar, they were looking for a little girl. Sure. And what he wants her to do is smuggle the little girl up to high level. Right. And he says she's not going to like it, and we can tell from her face that she doesn't. No, she's not happy about this at all. But it seems like it's probably going to happen. Well, that is the call to adventure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And she's already turned down the call to adventure a couple times. And this is the first issue. Yeah. So get to work adventuring. We've got a sweet map here. Oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. I see. Okay, this is actually convenient because we can see that High Level and Black Helix have these two symbols which occupy different parts of the map, both of which are north of the quote-unquote south, which is where she lives. Right. So let's talk about the art in this comic book a little bit. Sure. Now, I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell if it was just the colors mm -hmm. or if there's something special being done with the pencils here. I would describe it as a thin line style. It's kind of reminiscent of uh, Salvador La Roca's work on X-Men, or kind of the more recent Omega Men series as well. Sure. Now, as I remember, the the recent Omega Men series didn't have pencils. Okay. It was an inks-first process Okay, that they drew that book in. Yeah, well, the credits give me the impression that the color and the inks were done all at once. Right. So there's a, there is a pencil layer, but... It's not clear to me if, if it's fully penciled or if it's more of a pencil design that's then turned fully into a color image by the color artist. Right, but th this has a kind of painted look to it, and it has a really uh, dynamic and vivid color palette. Yeah, I agree. I mentioned that they use colors kind of sardonically. Among other things, 13 actually dyes her hair from blue to pink halfway through the comic book. Right. Yeah, the detail in those cyborgs is really sweet. Yeah, we get a cool setup here where we turn the page from one view of high level, which is bright and optimistic, to another, which is gray and dystopian. Yeah, I thought it was pretty fabulous art. I don't know if I was quite as entranced with the writing. Mm -hmm. I don't know, what do you think? I mean, post-apocalyptic is one of those areas where I, I hate to say that something feels cliche because... Calling post-apocalyptic a cliché is cliché. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't seen anything here that I haven't seen before. And this basic impetus for the series, okay, she's going to escort this little girl up to 
the dangerous part of the post-apocalyptic world where she doesn't really want to go. Like, even that is a story I have seen before. Yeah, if there's anything that's kind of pushing this book beyond... If there's anything that's making it stand out, I guess, it's the art. Mm-hmm. It's pretty rare to see to see a comic book that looks like this. You know, a lot of people try to do this painted style. It doesn't always work out that well. We also just have, like I said before, much more bold and dynamic color choices than what you normally see. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a visual feast, and I'm not that hooked by the story. It's kind of interesting that there's, like, perhaps an advanced, fully rebuilt civilization in some parts of the planet, and some people just don't want to be in it. Yeah, that's kind of an idea worth exploring. Also worth noting here that Thirteen steps into the bar bathroom with another woman for an interlude here, although it's unclear if that's just to secretly discuss business or not. Yeah, I guess I thought that it was. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to give a shout-out here to something that's completely different in terms of story, but is kind of similar in terms of the art style, which is Die, which is coming out from Image Comics lately. Oh, that explains why I haven't read Die number one. (laughs) Yeah, but it's a great-looking comic book. Yeah, I'm interested in that. But yeah, do you think you'll be reading any more high-level? I wouldn't mind having another look at it, but I'm not as hooked by it as I have by some other recent series I've seen. All right. In our next Hellblazer episode, join us for The Diary of Danny Drake. But first, join us next week for Preacher. As Jesse and Tulip discover, even hit girls get the blues. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigize.blueberry.com, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, where we've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. If you've got questions about these comics or any other comics, or you just want to chat, you can drop us a line, vertigize at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at BlankCastSean. You can reach me on Twitter at Vertigize. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertigize. Whatever software you use for podcast listening, go ahead and give us a positive review on there. We will read out five-star reviews uh, on the Apple Podcasts app on the air. Tell a friend about Vertigais. Spread the word. Yep, but as always, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, everybody. I'll tell you something fucked up about Far Cry 4, though. You have a button to heal yourself when you've taken damage. Okay. And you'll see a little animation of, like, putting a bandage on or cauterizing a wound or pulling out a bullet, right? Okay. Except it never leaves first person, so all the wounds are in your hands. Always. (laughs) (laughs) You push a button and you wrap a bandage around your arm? Yeah. I see. That's what healing looked like in The Last of Us. You could see that guy's whole body. Still (laughs) always put the bandage on his arm.